This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send handpicked books to your door. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and they'll send you any book of your choice from their shop free when you use the promo code MAGICHOUR. Members also get exclusive perks like signed copies, access to rare titles, members-only pricing in their online bookstore, and more. That's charcoalbookclub.com and use the code MAGICHOUR to claim your free book. There have been various times that I have been afraid, you know, or I've thought, I can't do that. But I've always found whatever I was afraid of, it never happened. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. It was a true honor to meet with Rosalind Fox Solomon just a few days shy of her 88th birthday. It's often noted how she came to photography later than most when she was close to 40, but I couldn't help think more about how long she's kept it up for, how long she's stuck with it. In her 80s, she's continued to make photographs and strong ones at that. When we met, she served black coffee and showed me her old darkroom. The way in which she printed was always of paramount importance, she told me, and always gave it a great deal of care. An exhibition poster hung from a solo show in MoMA in 1986, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. The breadth of her work is enormous. It's held in over 50 museums around the world, has been the subject of 30 solo shows, and appears in 11 monographs, most recently, Got to Go with Mac. She's always photographed both at home and abroad, making pictures of people suffering from AIDS during the crisis in New York, to Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank just a few years ago. Vince Aletti said that he's thought of her as an intrepid explorer, who brings back these pictures that are not necessarily easy to look at, but has a lot to do with what makes them so powerful. She's happy to disturb us. One of the ways she taught herself how to photograph was by taking pictures of dolls that she'd found in a market. Her mentor, Lisette Modell, also had a big impact on her. Modell, of course, was the teacher of another famous photographer who loomed large in Rosalind's mind. I was very excited about Diane Arbus. I used to avoid saying that because for many, many years... Did you read that? No. Well, the, one of the last things that I said is that I carried the cross of Arbus on my back. <laughs> I like that. Because that's how I felt. Uh-huh. I'll never forget, there was a professor in the UK. He said, your work reminds me of Diane Arbus in Latin America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could not get away from it. Mm-hmm. I was working all over the world, and I was still Diane Arbus. Who turned you on to her? Was it Lisette? I knew about her before. I -hmm. saw her in magazines. I knew about her, and I knew about Ansel Adams. Uh And that was as far as it went. Uh But Lisette came into my life in an unusual way. I was having some printing done at Modern Age, which is a big photo lab, because I I was didn't know how to print. I mean, somebody told me how to set up a darkroom. I was in Chattanooga, and the Chattanooga Times chief photographer came and set up the dark darkroom with me. But my printing was was awful. So I found this lab in New York, where I was able to get. To, I was able to come to New York from time to time, and um, I started having some work developed there. They had a Christmas party, and at the party, I met a woman who said she was an agent. I had been photographing for five years. 
I said, oh, that's what I need. I need an agent. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, "Um, let me put you in touch with Henrietta Brockman. She is a photographer's agent, and I think she could be helpful to you. So I got in touch with Henrietta Brockman. I made an appointment with her, and she said, well, next time you come to New York, bring me everything that you've ever done. Everything. Everything you've ever done. I said, it's crazy. I can't do that. I've done so much. I went there with two big suitcases full of my work because I was obsessive about my work from the beginning. And um, so she talked to me for a couple of hours, and she never could go through all of it. But she said, you're talented, but there's a lot that you don't know. I think it would be very good if you could study with Lisette Modell. And I said, who's Lisette Modell? And she said, she's Diane Arbus's teacher. Mm-hmm. And I said, whoa, do you think she would take me on? She said, well, I'll talk to her. And that's how it happened. What was Lisette Modell like? Uh, Lisette Modell was a force. <laughs> she, she was a fairly small woman, but she was kind of ferocious. How so? Well, for one thing, she totally trusted all of her own instincts and all of her ideas. She knew everything. She knew that Avedon, there never would have been an Avedon if there had not been a Diane Arbus. She had a lot to say about everyone. (laughs) She was confident. She was extremely confident or... Maybe she was basically insecure and she had to do that, but I don't know. I mean, I'd never met anybody like Lisette Modell. She was a woman who had come out of a wealthy background and gave it all up. She lived in a basement apartment Mm -hmm. in the village, and she had no, she didn't like anything that was bourgeois. Mm -hmm. And um, she was, always telling me that I should buy a new lens for one thing or another. And I said, but it's so expensive. And she would say, well, can't your husband afford it? (laughs) It's the most important thing in your life. I've heard other people speak about her, and and usually they throw in a a darling at the end. But darling. You mean darling? Yeah, darling. Everything was darling. (laughs) She was Viennese, wasn't she? Yeah. But what was it that, aside from her character... What sticks out in in what you learned from her? Well, what I learned from her was to go for your attraction and um, go for the strongest image. And uh, what I learned from her was a lot about editing. I mean, I don't think I learned it right at that moment. But with her, she always wanted the most extreme image that you could come up with. And... um, for a while, that's what I did. But then I modified a little bit. You know, I mean, I didn't feel I had to follow everything. Sometimes I didn't want the most extreme image. Yeah. So, um, but that was one thing. Um, and also, never to be commercial. Never to be commercial. Never to be commercial. She was very anti-commercial. Very anti-commercial. Mm-hmm. And don't price your things... You know, um, at the time I lived in Chattanooga and I was having little shows there. 
and I was thinking $50, and she said, you cannot price your things for $50. That is too, that is commercial. You can't do that. But, She's, wait, know, she suggested more or less? Oh, more. Much more. More, Art, yes. Art for art's sake. and Yeah, yeah. more. Uh-huh. I, I felt that way myself. Mm. I never wanted to do it to please other people. Mm-hmm. That's something I really, really haven't done. It was always for yourself. I first, did yeah. what I what I thought was honest, you know. Mm-hmm. I tried to, because I don't think of doing my pictures as uh, outer surface. I think that I I do them from my gut, and um, I'm honest with them. I'm not trying to please people. Mm-hmm. I've never done that, so. You were just talking about editing and um, that being one of the things that uh, Lisette Modell taught you or that stuck with you. Now that you've been doing it for for such a long time, how do you think you become a better editor? I don't know. I can't really answer it. I look at the um, graphics of the image. I think about the feeling of the image and my feeling toward it. And um, sometimes I think of the politics of the image and the social context of the image, but which ones I keep and which ones I edit out, well, they have to combine some pieces of, of all of that. They have to have a lot of different things, layers in them, not the veneer. Right. So you, when you first started taking pictures, you were living in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Is that where you're from? No, I'm not from Chattanooga, Tennessee. You're not from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Where were you born? I was born in another place. It was not one of my most favorite places. Yeah. I was born on the North Shore of Chicago in Highland Park, Illinois. Mm. And um, when I met my husband, I was working in Chicago for three advertising executives. I took a secretarial course when I graduated from college so I could get a job. And um, I visited him in Chattanooga and I just thought it was so wonderful. You know, I thought the family was so warm and cozy and what a great place. Of course, Chattanooga has a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. It had a lot of problems and I think, I understand from someone I met recently who's in the field of photography that it's uh, still very hierarchical. In Chattanooga? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So you moved there because your husband lived there. Your yeah. husband and his husband's family lived there. Okay. But you know, now I consider it's really very important to my life that I lived there. How come? For one thing, it was like being in another country. Chattanooga was another country. It was the South. And... Living in Chattanooga gave me an opportunity to develop myself in ways that I don't think I would have developed if I had lived somewhere else. When I started photographing, there were no photographic departments in colleges. Photography was not known as an art. Hmm. That was one part of it. But it wasn't just about photography. Um, Oh, I forgot something very important. I became involved in the experiment in international living. What was that? The Experiment in International Living was an organization based on the fact the motto was, we learn to live together 
by living together. And the idea was that groups of Americans went to other countries and were placed with families. I went with the organization to Belgium and France when I graduated from college. But by the time I was around 30 in Chattanooga, when I read in my Goucher College Alumni Bulletin that the experiment was bringing incoming groups to this country, I got in touch with them because I thought it would be so wonderful to bring international groups to Chattanooga. I became more and more involved in it, and I ended up working as the Southern Regional Representative for the Experiment in International Living. Were you longing for that kind of work, or did it kind of just happen serendipitously? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, I wanted intellectual stimulation, and I wanted to do something that I thought was worthwhile. So I thought that the experiment was doing something fantastic. Mm. It's hard to think of it now because, because of globalism and all of the attitudes today, the tribalism, it's such a different world. At that time, it was working toward a world that where people would understand and respect one another and therefore would lead to peace. Mm. So it was very idealistic. And I felt it very strongly. Okay. So I did that for about eight years. So how did photography come into play? Well, at one point, the experiment asked me to be the National Public Relations Director. And I would have had to spend time in New York and time in Vermont where their headquarters were. And my husband said, if you take that job, I'm going to divorce you. And I was a wimp. You didn't I, take it. I didn't do it. Why didn't he want you to take it? Well, he didn't. He wanted me at home. He didn't want me traveling, being away for a week at a time here and there. He wanted you at home. He had, he had his idea of what he wanted his wife to be. A wife was supposed. Yes, of yeah. course. I, I was expected to be a traditional wife, as were most women at that time. Yeah. Of course, it was the beginning of the women's movement. As I was working to recruit people for the experiment. I remember coming back on a bus from Birmingham, Alabama and reading The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. Mm -hmm. It was a very influential book. It was geared toward basically upper middle class women, but at the time people weren't thinking, in the, you know. It was mind-blowing because she spoke about the problem that knows no name. Mm -hmm. And it's the problem of suburban wives uh -huh. who weren't involved and didn't have their own lives and were cleaning the house. Yeah. So that, that influenced me a lot. I thought I could take that job. Hmm. But I didn't, at that point, I didn't want to be divorced. It was a, it was a frightening thing. I mean, you Very had, frightening. Yeah. And I lived in Chattanooga and I had two kids. Hmm. And then I had a, I had a complete hysterectomy when I was 38 years old, and that really affected me for a while. I got kind of depressed. Mm -hmm. And on a trip to Japan, for the, I went on behalf of the experiment. I stayed with a host family up mm -hmm. near Tokyo. They didn't speak English. They were supposed to, but they didn't, and I didn't speak Japanese. And I had a little camera with me, and that's how I started photographing. Mm. And when I got back and showed people some of those pictures 
they said, oh, these pictures are great. You have to keep on doing this. And I set up a dark room behind my house in the garden shed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started trying to print. So Japan was the first... When was that? I'm just trying to... Cause I'm, I'm, 1968. So, so it's around 68, and you're, you're, you're taking pictures, you're experimenting. How did your work become more focused, or how did you decide what you wanted your work to be about? Well, the first thing that I did was to document the demolition of the Union Depot, a train station in Chattanooga. I did it because it was a metaphor to me. And it was a metaphor for the fact that my husband was ill. And so that was the first thing I did. It had a personal resonance for me. And then I discovered this market in Alabama. And the first thing that I focused on were broken dolls. Mm -hmm. There were many, many dolls just thrown on tables and missing limbs and cracked faces and so on. And I photographed them obsessively for quite a while. So I guess that answers your question. Was there something about the dolls that appealed to you in particular, or was it just No, it was broken up. It was the fact that they were, they were sick dolls. Uh-huh. But that was my conflicts about all kinds of things. So it was a subject matter, and then it was also this way of, it was a... Catharsis. Yeah. It kind of was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... I didn't know anything about Hans Belmer. Uh-huh. I'd never heard of him. Yeah. And I was really kind of surprised, you know, a few years later when I found out about him. Because I thought I was, I mean, it didn't matter, but I thought what I was doing was very unusual. Yeah. Of course, my dolls weren't like his dolls. Right. You know, they, they had a different vibe, most of them. Was photographing the dolls another way of kind of learning how to photograph? You have an inanimate object? Yes. Yeah. Through the dolls, I got a lens on my 35 millimeter to begin with, a close-up lens. And then I started photographing doll faces obsessively. Mm -hmm. And that's how, really, photographing the dolls was how I began to learn how to photograph people. And Lisette Modell always believed to get a good picture, you had to be close. So I followed that. So you're photographing dolls and you're learning how to photograph people. I wonder if you remember there being any other way that you remember getting better. Getting better at my work? Getting better at your work. How, was it through books? Was it? Well, through... I would just say, you know, in the beginning, um, periodically I was fortunate enough to go to New York, and I would take my work, and Lisette would critique it. Mm-hmm. And that went on for a couple of years. Um, how did I get better? You know, it's funny. I don't know if I really did get better. (laughs) I'm really serious. Right now I'm working with a lot of my early work on a book and a show. And um, it's strong. That (sighs) early work is strong. It's based on pictures I took in the South, which I'm kind of being a little expansive with that because I'm also including some pictures from Florida. It is the South, Louisiana, other places in the South, but the core of it is Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. And um, those are good pictures. And they're pictures, some of them, that, that, that are in museums. And they were just in my, you know, very beginning. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I was very also, I was really upset that people kept telling me that I was like Arbus. Uh-huh. I hated it. Now, now I think, oh, now that Arbus is, you know, an icon, why am I up to, you know, there's nothing to be upset about. But it was, there was something kind of different about it then. It was as if I could be wiped away because they could see some kind of connection. Hmm. Basically, the connection was square format and use of strobe. Mm-hmm. The subject matter was very different. However, I did think, as I went to photograph in the market, whereas she looked for, I hate to use the word, but you know, freaks. You know, she looked for people who were very outside of society. I felt that everybody had that kind of something strange about them at that time, that you could, you could see that in people. And I was interested in photographing the people there and just feeling whatever I felt about it. Do you think you could photograph anyone? That's interesting, too. Um, when I went to South Africa, uh, it was very hard to get access. And I made up my mind that I would photograph anyone who would allow me to photograph them, that I would not decide before I photographed them whether or not they were interesting. And through that experience, I learned that almost anyone could be interesting. If you got behind a camera and you looked carefully at them and allowed them to just... Well, I don't do a lot of talking when I photograph. You don't? No. Mm. I want people to sort of get into themselves. How do you work with someone? I just... Well, it just depends on the situation. If I'm going into somebody's house, for a number of years, I have used a tripod. And then I set up my tripod, and I find some kind of place where it could be good to photograph them. And then I just don't say anything. And I just look at them, and they look at me. And I, eventually I take a picture. Yeah. Take more, you know, I take pictures. But I don't try to put people at ease. You don't? No, I do not want them to be at ease. (laughs) You want them to be uncomfortable? I want them to be into themselves to a degree. Because I don't want them to put on a facade. Mm -hmm. Because that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the beautiful face. I'm looking for something in the interior that I imagine to be in the interior. That doesn't mean that... I'm not going to say that it always is, but I'm looking for the interior of the person or the conflicts that the person has. It's interesting, sometimes the way that they look at me, they don't know a lot about me. A lot of times they don't know very much about me at all. And I don't know what they're thinking, but I, I, you know, I don't, I wear a sun hat and I wear a vest with all my stuff in it. And I'm old. You know, I mean, even 20 years ago, I was old. <laughs> I'm even older now. Uh-huh. But um, so they can't figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> really, uh-huh. they can't figure out what is this old lady doing here, yeah. you know. And so I think maybe in a way, sometimes people are a little scared. But I think also they're not because they think I'm just a crazy woman. 
<laughs> I don't know, but nobody ever told me that, but that's what I think. Mm. There's like a, this balance going on between this, this almost uh, a, a bit of a, a certain tension in a situation, yeah. who you are as a person, how you, how you appear to someone, and it all kind of plays into to how it's done, to how it's made. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's how they look, it's how I look. I want to be neuter when I go in. I don't want them to place me. I don't want to be placed. I don't want them to know about my children and my this and that and the other. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're going to place me in a certain way anyway, especially in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. How did you get here? You know. How do you disarm someone or how do you kind of um, avoid that? You just go for it. I just think, let them be uncomfortable. I'm not Uh looking to make them comfortable. Yeah. But I don't, they don't ask me about myself. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Your portraits of people with AIDS. It was the first time where you spoke to the people you were photographing. You would record them for about a half an hour before mm-hmm. taking their photos. I did. First of all, I'm just curious, have you done anything with those recordings? Just this year, I had an intern who transcribed all of my tapes. Wow. 60 pages. Unbelievable. A lot of them I remember and I can put with their interviews. Some of the others I don't remember who goes with what interview, but there are at least a dozen that I can... There were 65 pictures in my show, so there were 65 people, and I, I talked to all of them. Mm. It's strange. I never thought of doing that again. I mean, I never thought about talking to other people. the way. I just felt that at least that was something, partly... Well, I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to really establish, I mean, they were dying yeah, and I knew they were dying and I wanted to listen to them. Mm. It was really about that. I never did anything with the tapes. That's how the work came about. It was just a desire. You saw what was happening and you wanted to do something with it. No, the work, the work came about because I had just had my two shows in 1986 and one of them was at MoMA. And then I wasn't sure what I was going to do after that. So then, I don't know how I first heard about it. See, I wasn't involved with the gay community. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I, now I have, I am involved in the sense that I have close friends in the gay community. But at the time, I wasn't particularly involved in the gay, gay community. But I heard about it, and I thought it would be a good idea to do it. I just thought it would be a, a contribution. That's what I thought. I felt like I'd had this show at MoMA, and so I wanted to do something that would be a contribution. Mm-hmm. And finally, I went to somebody put me in touch with someone at a hospital, and she said she'd love to see me do it, but she had no idea how it would be possible. And then, like a week or so later, she called me and she said, I found someone who will help you. 
he was a young priest, and his whole, um, he was devoting his life to people with AIDS. He also is an artist, so he was very interested in my work. So he put me in touch with people, and I started with a couple of his friends, and then along the way he would continue to um, tell me about people, and also I'm, one led to another. And I went to, uh, I started going to a dinner at a church where many people with AIDS came with HIV. They came once a week on Friday nights. And um, I just talked to them and asked them if I could come to photograph them. Were most people receptive? Yes. And I know that they, they felt as though I was memorializing them, which I was. Mm-hmm. And also, I was giving them some attention. They were being ostracized. Yeah. You know, it was just a, such a terrible situation. And I really had a difficult year because people still thought that you could catch AIDS by being with somebody. Right. People couldn't understand, you know, friends, why I was doing it. They were frightened for you. Yeah. And they were in such a different world. I got so immersed in it that I just couldn't think about anything else uh-huh. that year. I mean, I would photograph a couple of people during the week and then I would go to that supper and you know then I had to process the stuff and so on is that usually what happens with you when you get involved in in any of your projects is that you're you get so immersed in it it's the only thing you could think about it's probably true I mean like when I was when I was in Peru I would stop in Lima for as short a time as possible because I didn't want to interact with bourgeois people Mm -hmm. and then I would go into the hinterlands and I was totally immersed when I did that let me ask you another question because there's something you said about doing the the AIDS work and that you saw what was going on and you knew you wanted to make a contribution you wanted to you wanted to do something with that how much do you think about something before you do it you mean should I do it shouldn't I do it should I do it how long do you you let it it stew for yeah Uh, I don't weigh it you just do it? I don't weigh it. If there's something that I... Re- I mean, right now, if I knew of something that I really wanted to do, I would probably find a way to do it. I'm definitely not putting out my own money for another project. <laughs> I mean, I just can't keep... You know, that's... Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. But I think I could probably get funding if I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I don't. Mm. I haven't thought about what I... I mean, I think about it, but... On the other hand, now I think, I don't need to do any more. I've done so much. Yeah. So much, so much, so much for so many years. <laughs> so it's fun to, you know, it's nice to be getting it out. Yeah. But then again, you probably didn't need to do any of it, and you did so much of it. So, I mean, where does that impulse come from? And, well, uh, I, I, wanted, I wanted to know the world. I wanted to know what other people were like. When you travel somewhere, do you stay there for a long time? Do you like to familiarize yourself with a place or? Not too long. I mean, I wouldn't stay any longer than three weeks now. Mm-hmm. There were times when I stayed for six weeks or even more. Mm-hmm. I think I stayed two months in Israel once. It was hard. Most people, the photographers didn't do that mm-hmm. because it was so stressful there. It's intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, going back and forth isn't that easy either. Of course. But I don't know what next. It worries me. <laughs> Does it? 
Well, yeah, what am I going to do? I mean, am I going to just start being a theater goer, you know, saying, seeing more plays? And <laughs> It doesn't seem like, oh, maybe, I don't know. I it, don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I still probably have a couple of books. Michael Mack has been great. This is, a, I'm on my third book with him. Mm. So if he's interested in other things, I still have work that is not published. A lot of amazing Peru work and, or Latin American work in general and, and India, India and Nepal, things that aren't in, you know, maybe one or two pictures are out. Yeah. I want to ask you about one of the books you did with Mac, which is Got to Go, which is an incredible book. It's a collection of pictures that you interspersed with the narrative, with writing. And I want to ask you about the writing. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, did you always write? Well, that's a very good question. And that's one of the things that I've been thinking maybe I can do now. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about it the other day and I thought, how do I, how can I be a writer? I don't read enough. <laughs> you know, they say you just have to read a lot to be a writer. Mm. Reading is so important. I mean, I try, I do read, I'm usually reading some kind of book, but I'm not a voracious reader at this time in my life. Yeah. Or I haven't been for a number of years. I don't know. I did take a poet, I have taken uh, poetry workshops, and um, some of them, uh, a couple of the things I wrote in my, the poetry workshop. Yes, I always wanted to be a writer. Hmm. When I was young, I wanted to be a writer. And I was discouraged. I had, was very insecure. My senior year in high school, I told my teacher, my English teacher, that I wanted to be a writer. And she said, that's a very hard thing to do. And I took it as, don't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did something completely different. Yeah. And, um, but for here and there, I've always written, I've written poems and I've written journals. So in Got to Go, my mother leads it off because my mother said, I hate getting old or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then she went on about her hip. She was having hip surgery. And I, I wrote down what she said at the time because it was so interesting. Yeah. Well, there's this interplay between the images and the text. I mean, obviously, both of them alone are, are interesting, but together they create, I don't even know how to describe it, the word that comes to mind, there, there's a devastating quality. Wow. Especially to the words so personal and confessional, but not confessional, confessional filtered through your own voice and a tradition. Were you ambivalent about publishing that work? There have been various times in my life as a photographer or artist that I have been afraid, you know, or I've thought, I can't do that. That's scary. Yeah. But I've always found whatever I was afraid of, it never happened. (laughs) You know, some of the things that I thought would happen, I don't know what I thought would happen, but I didn't get, I didn't get challenged in any particular way by people, by critics, or um, I did make myself vulnerable doing it. Although, I said it's part fact and part fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. part of it comes out of what I thought, not always exactly what happened. 
I think that's how that, I think it reads that's like how that. people write. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you could have published that work while your mother was alive? I, I don't think I would have. I could have. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't. My relationship with my parents was very bad. Uh-huh. Yeah. You guys didn't get along? Not really. Not for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, the relationship had basically disintegrated. But I probably still wouldn't have done it. My sister came to the opening of the show, and um, I didn't ask her there. I mean, she didn't stay very long, but I did talk to her on the phone about it, and she didn't want she didn't want to comment on it because I think she had a very different childhood than I did. She had a happy childhood. Happier, happier. Yeah, yeah. she was the younger one. Yeah. Um, mm. In the end, my parents did not leave me a china doll. Not that I was expecting it, mm-hmm. but um, no, it was a very bad. Uh-huh. I was a strange person in the family. I was serious and intense, and they were completely different. And uh, anyway. Have you ever thought about how your relationship with your parents has changed your own motherhood? That's a funny question. <laughs> well, of course I was, I was worried about ending up in the same, you know, do, repeating things. Yeah. All I can tell you, what I would like to tell you, is that I have a really great relationship with both of my kids and with their mates as well. You know, in later years, it's been really close. So... It's quite different. I want to ask you another question about Got to Go. How are you thinking about the edit of those pictures? And how are you thinking about the way that the pictures and the text played off each other? I was thinking about it a lot. And I did a lot of (laughs) interweaving them and trying to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, that was, it took me a long, long time to put the, to put the book together. How did you know when you had something that was that was it? I don't know. Just felt right? I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there there is a lot of there's a lot of sadness in it. And a lot of things are 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 the truth. Mhm. The part about when my mother died. I was in Peru in the in the baths or something and I just got a a message, a phone message, your mother died. And, you know, it was like, it was just strange. It wasn't from the family. It was from somebody else. When you read that book and you experience it, this is a quality that I'm talking about that I have felt in other work that I've responded so so intensely to, is that you get a feeling that you know the person in a way. You get a feeling that you relate to qualities of the work almost in in a way that the person is talking to you. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't interestingly yeah. I didn't I didn't get challenging questions about that work. Mm. I had a lot of interviews with about yeah. got to go, but I didn't there was nothing like Digging yeah. into my relationship with my parents. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't, you know, I'm really happy with my 
relationships with my children and with my grandchildren, and I feel very blessed. And I'm not saying this like one of those homilies, but it's true. They really care about me, and I really care about them. And um, that's all, you know. I feel so lucky for that mm-hmm. because I mean, it's been, that it's didn't been, happen in the rest of my life, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't always that way with them. I mean, because I came to New York and I started a whole new life, and I wanted to be—I wanted to be separate in a way too. I had to be. You wanted to be alone. No, I wanted to be separate. It's separate. different than being alone. Right. I didn't want to be in the role. I didn't want to be... In, I mean, they were grown. Yeah. They were grown. I didn't think I still had to be <laughs> anything. <laughs> of course, in recent years, I've been... I have been more, you know, like more mother. But um, no, I just had... I had to make my own life then. I had to make my life. And I just couldn't be... I was tough about it. It really mattered to me to do the work. And I did it. Yeah. And um, I'm glad I did. I mean, I don't have any regrets, really. I don't. I mean, and we, that's what my mother said to me. I don't have any regrets? When I went to see her when my father was dying and I went to see them. And she said, I have no regrets meaning that I should have a lot of regrets. You know, I was always the bad, I was mm. the bad. She had no regrets because she, the way that she lived she was, was, was the way to live. And she hated her mother. But she said, I had no regrets. She always wanted you to be like her. Well, she wanted something that I couldn't give her, that's all. Mm. For a lot of reasons. Mm. Every family is not a happy family. No, every family has their issues. Yeah. And I think that's why the work is so is so great because mm. even if someone doesn't have a relationship with their parents or their mom that's fraught, I think that everyone does to a certain extent in certain, in different ways, you know, when you can project yourself onto or into someone else's work. I mean, I think that that is a... Huh. Yeah, it's a compliment. It's wonderful. But I, you know, I try to be, I mean, I try to be honest because mm. I, I don't see any other way to do the work, but, you know, honest, but also, you know, fiction here and there, but um, yeah. basically honest. Thanks for talking. Boy, it seemed pretty intense. Yeah, intense in a good way, I think. That was really great. That was my conversation with Rosalind Fox-Solomon that we recorded in New York. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhem. Music in this episode by Damien Lazarus, Michelle Macklem, Poddington Bear, and the Monks. If you like the show, take a second and give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow along on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. And for more info on the show, check us out at www.magichourpodcast.org. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.